Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers. I'm here today with Ronald Hutton, professor of history at the University of Bristol, to talk about his extremely influential book, The Triumph of the Moon, on the occasion of its 20-year anniversary and concomitant reissue. Good morning, Professor. It's such an honor to speak with you today. Good morning. It's an honor and a pleasure to speak to you. How are you? How do I find you this morning? Oh, it's November. (laughs) It's just halfway through a university term. It's not the best time of year, but uh, uh, apart from being enclosed in by a government lockdown, an international pandemic, uh, and uh, the constant problems of shifting an entire life online, everything is peachy. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that really that quite covers it, doesn't it? Um, it's so November today, too. I don't I mean, we're we're just across the channel from each other. So I just it's it's been quite a November. It feels very November. Uh, all right. So, um, again, thank you so much for sparing me some of your very valuable time. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. I read it 20 years ago. Um and it's it long remains one of my favorites. Um, you have such a you're such a delightful writer um, that it's it's no surprise really about its success uh, as well as the research obviously. But so when when I was prepping for this interview, I was reading the you know looking at the reviews and reading the discussion of the book, and I kept running across words like landmark, seminal, foundational. Um, you get the idea, right? And I, don't, this, I don't read these reviews, so uh, you're, you're in a much stronger position than I. <laughs> well, trust me on this. This is foundational and landmark. I kept running across, across the word landmark. Uh, and this really is the first thorough scholarly treatment of modern pagan witchcraft, right? And it sits in the midst of some similar research on your CV, but it represents a considerable departure from your earlier work on the 17th century in some ways. So what I've got here is a it's kind of a two-headed question. I'm going to smush it into one. So I've always imagined it was a bit of a gamble for you to take on the work. Um, so I think the first part of my question is, is that true? Did you feel like this work might be, um, might not be taken seriously or might someone might look askance? But I guess really what I'm asking is how you came to write this book. I want to know how you moved between the rise and fall of Mary England, the glory of 1688, um, the Royalist War effort, 1642 to 1646, which is as traditional and historical title as you are likely to get, and then the Stations of the Sun and the Triumph of the Moon. Well, I wrote Triumph for two different audiences. One was for me, and the other was for modern pagan witches and people interested in them. And the two audiences have different starting points. I had known modern witches since I was in my mid-teens and enormously liked them and had kind of kept in touch with them. 
And I'd always had an interest in ancient paganism, in seasonal festivals. I was always going to write a book about the history of the ritual year. But you don't get a job in the 1980s doing that. So I started off as a conventional political and military historian, working in a field in which there was an enormous amount of traditional interest, and duly shot up the academic ladder. And when I got to a safe place in it about halfway up, I reckoned that I could take a risk and write about some of the other stuff that had always interested me since my adolescence. So I wrote a survey of what was known of ancient paganism in Britain. I wrote two books in the history of the ritual year. And these made me more and more conscious of the way in which 19th, 20th century Europeans had invested so many aspects of traditional culture in the idea that they were survivals from paganism. And as increasingly research seemed to indicate that something more dynamic was going on, a lot of them weren't unchanging survivals. I was interested in what was really going on and also why Victorians and Edwardians were so incredibly interested in paganism and wanted it. And that's why I ended up writing Triumph for myself. For my friends among pagans, especially pagan witches, there was a different emphasis, a different service. And this was that a lot of those who were among the leaders of the tradition in the United Kingdom had written the main books about it, led the main groups, had become aware that changing patterns of research had called into question the traditional foundation story of their religion. And they'd lost faith in it, leaving a vacuum a sense that modern pagan witchcraft seems to come out of nothing to be invented by people in the 1940s and 1950s. And so I set to work to help them, as they were my friends, by providing a proper solid history that nobody could destroy or question, and also to show how modern pagan witchcraft was not some lunatic fringe. It was actually an extreme distillation of some of the main currents in mainstream British society. So those are the two wellsprings of the book. All right. Um, I don't know that we need to really get into the arguments in detail here as they're just so well known. Uh, And there are other things I want to talk about. But um, just it seems as good a time to to, to mention. In short, you argue that modern pagan witchcraft or Wicca was not a continuation of pre-modern religious practices, but rather the cultural creation of the 19th and 20th centuries. And then the second half of the book goes on to show how Wicca successfully triumphed overseas. Is that a fair assessment? It is up to a point. Uh, I, I do argue constantly that it uses ancient images and ideas, but it does so with modern emphases, and not just emphases that it had developed itself, emphases developed by mainstream Western European society in the 19th and 20th centuries. So it's a continuum in the sense that a lot of the building materials have come down straight from the ancient world, but it's reconstructed in a way that gives it intense relevance and value to the present. Wonderful. All right. Um, 
There has been some pushback regarding this first bit, and there seems to be some investment in the idea that there's this underlying popular religion, a a continuation of pre-modern, traditionally British, non-Christian, popular religion that drove the quotidian practices of peasants, rural dwellers, the common people. And I mean, indeed, it seems you're still writing and speaking on these. Um, As I can tell, your, your most recent publication is called The Christian Goddesses, The Question of Pagan Survivals Reconsidered. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. What is at stake? Why is this so important? It depends to whom you're you're speaking. Uh, It is the foundation legend of modern pagan witchcraft that there was this popular survival, uh, persecuted as witchcraft in the early modern period, and then re-emerging from the shadows in uh, the mid-20th century. And that overlaps with uh, a genuine truth, which is that uh, there are a lot of cultural continuities from ancient to modern paganism in seasonal rituals and customs, folk beliefs, popular magic, beliefs in spirits called fairies or pixies or by other names, high ritual magic, and that great love affair with the art and literature of the pagan ancient world, which uh, has kept the ancient goddesses and gods, especially of Greece, Rome, the Irish, and the Norse, as living entities in our culture. Uh, The difference is that until the 1970s, mainstream historians believed that an actual living conscious paganism had survived Uh, under persecution, at least until the early modern period. And in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, academic historians carrying out a lot more research just lost faith in that. They they jettisoned the idea before I ever came to write about it. So this wasn't my work, which is why I don't regard myself as an iconoclast. I'm somebody who's trying to rebuild things after the destruction of a an academic orthodoxy has taken place. In the old centres of modern paganism, that is uh, in Britain and among those groups in North America and the rest of the English-speaking world, which had been established in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, this was perfectly accepted. The pushback, as as you've termed it, in favour of the traditional idea tends to come from groups outside this original core of pagan leaders. Uh, A really quite small minority in Britain of people who are hostile to or separating themselves from uh, the established modern pagan witch traditions and providing traditions of their own, which they claim to be more authentic in memorial. And much more important, overseas in many parts of America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, people who've only very recently been converted to pagan witchcraft. That's in the last 20, 25 years. And were converted by people who taught them the traditional foundation legend. So they've only just fallen in love with a new religion, embraced it, and suddenly get hit by my work, 
which informs them that the foundation legend isn't quite what they took it to be. So among these people, there's obviously quite a distressed emotional reaction, particularly if foes of theirs locally have used my book to attack them. So this this is all rather difficult for me because it's all happening in other hemispheres, even though the internet has brought it very close. It still has a very different cultural context from that in which I operate in Britain, both among pagans and among academics. Mm. Um, I mean, and I think it's important to note that while this is an academic study, it's uh, you're covering something that's that's alive and thriving and very closely held. Right? This isn't just an academic study. It, it yeah, it's it is. It is just an academic study uh, in the sense that it's not a book for practitioners. It's not a book to teach people about modern pagan witchcraft. It's a book about the past. It's a book about history, which is why it's not a guide to modern pagan witchcraft. And people who want to know what the religion feels like, uh, what it's like to practice it now, where it's going, need to read other books Uh, This is firmly on where all this has come from and why it's quite important and deserves the respect both of historians and of contemporaries. Certainly, it's based on uh, a good insider knowledge of modern pagan witchcraft. Uh, And there's the occasional personal reflection on people I've met. But uh, it's, it's not a practitioner's manual. No, there, it does not include your own book of shadows. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's, I think whenever we're writing about these things we care about, when, you know, I write about sexuality and family construction, or you write about religious beliefs, it, it touches on, it, it, I don't know, I think it, it feels more personal than, um, you know, the Civil War or something, but perhaps that's not the case either. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking myself out of that question while I'm asking it. So, um, were you surprised at the success of this book? Sorry, the the sound quality is fading a bit. Can you say that again? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, were you surprised by the success of Triumph of the Moon? Um, I I'm not really aware of its success. Uh, I I know that it sold pretty well just because of the royalties it's earned. But then it's not the best-selling book I've ever published. And I've written a number of books, which to my pleasure seem to go down well with general readers as well as uh, fellow scholars. Uh, I I am glad that uh, it's clearly meant a lot to a lot of people. I I have an enormous um, post bag as a result of it. Uh, pretty pretty well all of it from people who uh, have enjoyed it. And to my surprise, a lot of them have been attracted to modern pagan witchcraft by it. I'm, I'm very pleased by that since uh, they pretty well all seem to be happy with the results. But um, I, I don't have day to day any tangible sense of its success. It's one of a number of books that I've written, of course, because it's my disease, I keep writing the things. And so it's always an ongoing process. The book with which I'm currently in love is always the one which I'm currently writing. Mm. Oh, that's a gift, right? As so many historians 
uh, and so many writers of all sorts are generally in love with the next book, <laughs> not, not the one they're currently writing. So, God, that's nice. Um, so uh, why did you decide to revisit The Triumph of the Moon 20 years later? Because so much research had happened in the intervening 20 years. Uh, we simply knew a lot more about certain aspects of the story. And conversely, some of what I had written in the first edition was now outdated and gave uh, a false impression of things. Uh, I think my biggest mistake in the first edition was that pushed by a lot of anthropologists and sociologists, I provided uh, a rather personal, a rather inept survey of uh, modern pagan witchcraft, particularly in the British world, the 1990s. And of course, 20 years on, that was completely out of date. So it really had to go. And it was quite a neat fit that by scrapping that section, I could put in more about the history uh, of new material which had emerged in the same amount of time. So it all married up rather nicely. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. All right. Um, so, yeah, tell me what has changed. What would someone who knows the first edition find to enlighten them anew here? There'd been a lot of new work done about the history of Wicca in particular uh, by quite a large number of writers. Uh, people like Philip Heseltine, Ethan Doyle White are perhaps the most prolific uh, working on the British sources. And these I was going to say younger scholars, actually Philip's older than I am, but scholars who've come more recently into the field uh, are all part of a network with me. We're all friends and support each other mutually. And so it's become a very pleasant collective of people who occasionally differ over details, but uh, are working hard on different aspects of the story. And because I'd laid out the broad framework 20 years before, I was able to fit their work in with mine into the framework and produce an up-to-date that did credit to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, so are, do you, are you continuing this work? What are you working on now? You mentioned Christian goddesses, uh, question mark. The question mark's um, important because uh, I think that the, the title is wrong and I'm going to go on to say so. It's uh, a reconsideration of the whole notion of pagan survivals. And to give the plot and the, the game away at the beginning, I'll say that what I'm doing is looking at figures from the Middle Ages, and the early modern period, who don't really fit into either a Christian or a pagan framework. They're utterly unchristian, and sometimes they're rather anti-Christian. But uh, they're not actually direct survivals from the pagan ancient world. They're the product of something I've argued for and identified now for almost 40 years, which is an incredibly creative and dynamic popular and intellectual culture at this time, which isn't really fettered by either Christianity or ancient paganism. It's capable of producing entirely new cosmologies which challenge the old pagan Christian polarity and dichotomy. And we really need a new language that isn't polarized between paganism and Christianity in this, own way, this old way, and recognize how much keeps developing and changing throughout the millennia. Hmm. Um, 
I'm fascinated by this idea um, that, that we tend to, you're, you're arguing we, we, we polarize when it's unnecessary. And that are you calling, are you suggesting that there's an ongoing, like, what's our, what's the word I want? Syncretism? Um, uh, it's no, it's, it's not syncretism. Uh, although you've, you've read what I'm saying in a very interesting way. Uh, syncretism to me would be a blend of paganism and Christianity. And the figures I'm considering, figures like uh, Mother Nature, um, Mother Earth among intellectuals, and the roving lady of the night, commonly called Diana Herodias, or the Fairy Queen, or the Kaliach or Kalech uh, among the ordinary people. Uh, these are figures that develop in the course of the Middle Ages, but they have nothing Christian about them whatsoever. They do probably draw upon ancient pagan ideas, although that's only speculative. But they are new developments. They're, they're doing things which Christianity doesn't do. And they are products of an ostensibly Christian civilization. So something a lot more interesting and complicated and unexpected is going on than we had thought for the last couple of hundred years. Oh, I am very excited to read that. Wonderful. Um, uh, so, you know, a, a couple of other questions. We've got a few more minutes. Um, you know, you said in the 80s one wasn't going to get a job uh, uh, studying the the paganism, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, but uh, as I understand, you have many graduate students. Um, so do you feel that the, has, have these things changed? Do you think that this is now um, has been legitimized as a study? Yes, and no. Uh, it's no longer considered. It's no longer considered. Sorry, the screen just switched off. Uh, it's no longer considered to be scandalous uh, or appalling for somebody to work upon modern paganism. It's regarded as a legitimate field of study. But people who study it are most unlikely to get jobs. They don't fit into any existing structures of scholarship, patronage, and academic focus. So they're perfectly entitled to write PhDs, but they're not going to get tenure. Whereas those who work on the traditional subjects in which I started out still get straight onto the academic ladder, and they fit into such jobs as there are going. So this is not just an academic problem, it fits into a wider one in society, that people who are pagans now are unlikely to get their windows broken, their children taken away, to be dismissed from their jobs. Uh, but they probably aren't going to get promotion. The greatest single weakness of paganism in the modern world is it doesn't have a single respected social role model. There's not a single top politician, rock star, film star, novelist, culture hero, sports hero or heroine, leader of commerce or industry who is openly a pagan. Uh, it's remained socially and politically very much a tradition of the disempowered fringe. And that's the next thing that's got to change if paganism is going to be accepted in the present world. So this is a much more serious and wider and larger problem than one of academic employment. 
Hmm. Um, immediately, I want, I'm thinking about the gender implications there and how paganism is gendered in the modern perception, at least in the U.S., um, which might be something I want to think about. Um, so uh, what is, and this is a totally fun, just fun question, but what is your favorite of your books? Do you have one, I suppose? Of all the books I've written? Um, I think it probably is Triumph because uh, I hugely enjoyed writing it and it brought me into contact with a lot of lovely people uh, who remain my friends, compounding those uh, in the pagan world I'd befriended before. It was a very risky thing to do. I, I was a full professor at the time I did it, so I was in a very strong position. I couldn't lose a job. But it did set back my career by about 10 years. So I, I suppose in many ways, um, to provide a, a male gendered metaphor, that triumph was rather like having a gorgeous and exciting and incredibly troublesome uh, romantic partner uh, who's forever getting you into trouble, uh, but who remains deeply lovable. I mean, that's that's the thing. When you love something, it's you you, you tolerate uh, what it does. The, the little bomb it, the bombs it tells, tends to set off in your life. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for taking your time uh, to talk to me about this. I was I loved this book. I loved I loved Triumph of the Moon, and I'm so excited to speak to you about it. Um, and uh, as noted, you are an incredibly prolific historian, so I imagine you'll be off to write some more uh, soon enough. And I'll thank you for such a, a very pleasant and enjoyable interview. As you know, but your viewers will not, you wrote to me requesting an interview, and I initially refused you. Uh, I, I don't often give interviews, but you wrote back such a charming letter in return to tell you had just turned you down that you won my heart, and so I cheerfully agreed to this. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> and I, I love the idea that I was charming over email. So very few of my colleagues might agree with that, um, that estimation. <laughs> All right. So uh, and I will, uh, I'll be in touch about uh, maybe some, some of your future work as well. But until then, thanks again. Thank Take you. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.